Hi, I'm Suraj Partha. Welcome to Art in All Its Forms. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Art in All Its Forms. Uh, it's good to be back with you and to bring this content to you. Uh, I guess this is my first time back since getting a job officially as a public radio host, which is not something I expected to happen, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I was hired to become a host for Classical KUSC, the radio station in Los Angeles. Uh, it's the largest nonprofit classical music station in the United States. And uh, I'm going to be hosting, it looks like, weekend early morning radio. So if you want to listen to classical music and you want to hear me, you know, intro and outro pieces and provide you some context as to why those pieces of music matter, uh, you can find more information on the newsletter and you can go to KUSC.org. Uh, let's see. What other housekeeping do I have? Um, this episode that you're going to hear was recorded in late 2021, and I just got around to editing it and putting it out. Uh, the new responsibilities of my job kind of took over a lot. Um, but I will endeavor to have more of these episodes coming out soon, and uh, hopefully I'll be publishing a calendar so that you know when all the new content's going to come out. Okay, on to the episode. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Nate Sloan. Nate is an assistant professor of musicology at the University of Southern California who researches jazz, Tin Pan Alley, and popular music. He has published many scholarly articles as a sole author and provided music analysis for The New York Times, The Economist, NPR, and The Atlantic. He's also the co-host of the very popular Vulture podcast, Switched on Pop. And with his co-host, Charlie Harding, Nate is the co-author of Switched on Pop, How Popular Music Works and Why It Matters, a book published by Oxford University Press. And in a personal note, Nate was my jazz history professor my senior year at USC. Nate Sloan, thank you so much for being with me. Thanks for having me, Serge. I'm uh, I'm really excited to to speak with you, and hoping at the end I can uh, ask you some questions from uh, the history of jazz midterm <laughs> that you that you took for me uh, three years ago, and and we'll see how how well you retained all of that information. I'm I'm editing that part out. <laughs> That's going to be interesting. Um, but yeah, as you alluded to, I mean, I was in your your jazz history. A class at USC, and that was your first year teaching at USC, right? Yes. What year was that, Serge? That was 2018. I took it in 2019 spring, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. That's, that was the, the second semester of my first year at USC. That was a really fun class we had. It's a really amazing program at USC. It is, it is. I mean, I, I, we were in an interesting place because I remember we didn't have a jazz history professor because I, I think that class is now taught uh, to sophomores, right, if I'm not mistaken? Sophomores and juniors, yeah. Sophomores and juniors. So I, we were different in that my class was almost all seniors, I think, mm -hmm. because we had we didn't have a professor teaching that course, and we were waiting for someone to come in, and, and that was you. And so we got jazz history sort of at the tail end of our, of our time at USC, which is really interesting. My experience with jazz history is it's probably, I, I would think, the same as uh, as yours and many other people who study jazz, not to be overly simplistic, but my 
understanding of the music basically started with Charlie Parker mm-hmm. and everything that came after that. And when I learned that there was a whole half century of music Before. that led up to the the bebop revolution, uh, I I just kind of became I, I totally went down the rabbit hole with that. And um, yeah, we, I'd love we we can definitely talk about that more later. But it's it's been really fun to to explore the the full breadth of, of jazz history with students. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we will definitely discuss that. Let's start off. I start off every episode with. Just asking whoever my guest is how they got to where they are. So, mm. you know, so from what I understand, you were brought up in, in New York, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I grew up on 85th Street and 3rd Avenue in New York. If you're a, a, a fan of jazz music, there's, there's really nowhere better to be born. Uh, so I had, a really, I had a really fun childhood playing music. I, I had some really formative experiences at the Harlem School of the Arts. Mm. Where I got to work with Kelvin Bell, uh, of of Defunct and and many other great jazz uh, jazz funk outfits, and Daniel Romain, who is now a really accomplished composer, so that was an amazing education. And then at night I got to go to uh, venues, some of which are no longer around, like Tonic and the the Knitting Factory. Uh, some of which are, are still are like 55 bar and uh, and and of course the village vanguard so I, I just got exposed to just a, a world-class uh, level of jazz on a on a weekly basis so it was it was pretty pretty spectacular <laughs> were you always interested in jazz just as a young person um, or was that something that you came to later on I mean for me I only really I think on really knew of jazz as a thing to listen to and a thing to to play when I was really in middle school. I was exposed to jazz from a very young age because my dad was a big jazz fan and he had a huge record collection and a really capacious knowledge of the music and once in a while would dust off a tenor sax or clarinet and even play a little bit. So there's a lot of music in my house and I feel like I told myself that I liked jazz, but I don't know that I really got it. I vividly remember this one moment where I was listening to the last track of Sonny Rollins' saxophone Colossus album, which is called Blue Seven. It was kind of like, uh, do, you, do you know the, the movie A Beautiful Mind? Yeah. With, with Russell Crowe, there's that scene where he sees all the figures and the calculations like coming together in his in his consciousness and you see them all floating around and, and I kind of, I had like the equivalent of that moment where I was like, Oh, I used to listen to this music, but I didn't really understand the, the, the logic of it and the grammar of it. It, it was just kind of a lot of noise to be, to be perfectly honest. Yep. And then uh, this, it was one of those light bulb moments. It was a total, fulcrum in my relationship to the music where all of a sudden I was like oh I understand how Sonny Rollins is is building a solo and developing those these motivic ideas and interacting with the other musicians and I'm listening to this like it's a story rather than just kind of a a blast of of in inchoate texture and uh and that was the moment I think when I really became a, a true jazz fan yeah 
saxophone colossus that that's a great place to start for sure uh yeah still holds up for sure oh yeah definitely so you were you and you are a pianist uh so you start did you start taking piano then early and then you you started going into into jazz piano yeah that's exactly right serge and i sort of rebelled against the piano lessons that i would had been forced to take my whole life Mm -hmm. um i now now i really love classical music and classical piano but at the time that was the repertoire i'd been forced to play right and uh i think when i was 12 or or so i i was like i i have to put my foot down i can't i'm not (laughs) enjoying this uh in fact i hate it (laughs) and i want to stop and my parents essentially bribed me to keep playing by saying, what if we, what if you took a, a jazz piano lesson? And I was like, okay, sure. And of course I immediately fell in love with it. And, uh, and that really just set me off on a, on a path of pursuing that to a really dedicated degree in, in high school. And I was lucky enough to have a few classmates, uh, especially someone who's still a really close friend of mine and then, incredibly talented musician named Dave Harrington, uh, who plays guitar in the, the band Dark Side, among many other projects. And uh, we really encouraged each other and, and in our listening and our playing, and it just became, I, I, I think, the core of, of my identity in a lot of ways when I was in high school. Sure. No, I had a very, very similar thing around the same age, actually, around, right around 12, 12 years old. I was moving out to L.A. to start pursuing acting as a, as a thing. And when I left Memphis, I was like, I'm done with classical piano. Like, please, no more like Haydn sonata. <laughs> it's like I can't right. do it. And then I came and the first thing I did was I, I just told, you know, my mom, I was like, I want to play and sing. So I need something that lets me do both of these things because I, I was taking vocal lessons and I was you know, learning like whatever Phil Collins and you know, Elton John and you know, the kind of music that my dad listened to. I, you know, I listened to that stuff. And so I wanted to sing all of that. And, you know, if I took that to my piano teacher, I love I love my piano teacher, but she was like this older Russian woman. And she didn't really like have a knowledge of like, you know, progressive rock music. And so there was no way for me to bridge that gap with her. And then when I got to L.A., I was like, take me to someone who can teach me how to, like, play some chords and, like, sing. And so – and then when I got to, to USC or just a little before USC, that was when I went back and, and listened to some classical music. And now that I wasn't forced into it that way, I started to enjoy it later. So mm. I feel that. We, we, then we have another thing in common, which is we both had Russian classical piano teachers. <laughs> right. Very, very strict. Very scary. Yes. She would literally wrap my knuckles when I played a wrong note. Oh wow! With a with a plastic alligator, she had, and she had, and she had, uh, she had pictures of the Russian pianist Stavislav Richter all over her. She she was like he was like her t- teen <laughs> oh, idol. Yeah. He was like the equivalent of Justin Bieber for her. So it was <laughs> pretty funny. That's amazing. Uh, so then how do you get to Brown, right? You did your, your bachelor's at Brown. So then I know you studied at Stanford. So both of those schools are, are interesting to me. I mean, obviously, they're incredibly prestigious places to go and study. And um, but and both of them do have music programs, although they're not necess- – at least Stanford, I know, like is not necessarily performance-based so much. Mm. 
even though there is a yeah. lot of stuff that does happen there, like the Stanford Jazz Workshop is there, and and Brown is similar. I mean, it's around a lot of music stuff, but at the same time, it's not like, you know, I mean, I don't know. When I think of like a jazz musician, I think like New England Conservatory or like Juilliard or you know, USC or something like that. So how did you conceive of like going to college to study music at those places? And then were you already interested in doing it, you know, doing this in terms of musicology and like an academic focus or was that something that came later? Yeah, no, it's I it's not something I actually had any interest in pursuing in college. Hmm. And even though I just told you that music was my identity in high school, I, I nevertheless I looked at college as an opportunity to reset to a degree uh, and pursue other interests I had. At the time, those were environmental science. That was something I was really passionate about. So, at least something I was really passionate about right up to the point when I took a class in environmental <laughs> science. Okay. Uh, my freshman year of, of college, after which I quickly realized that I actually hate science uh, <laughs> and have no aptitude for it which led me to spend the the rest of my freshman year casting a little bit for the subject that I was interested in. I didn't think it was music. I couldn't actually figure out what it was, and I was feeling very lost at the end of my freshman year at Brown University, and I uh, took advantage of their a very lax policy they had about taking uh, time off, and, and so I took a semester off. And I can't entirely recreate my thought process here, but I thought that I should travel, and I thought I should travel somewhere really far away, and then I thought I should travel somewhere where they still spoke English because I didn't know any other languages. Uh, and so I, I, using that rubric, I thought I should go to New Zealand. Okay. I'll do this thing that I'd heard about where you can work on organic farms in exchange for, uh, for, for, for room and board. I took took the semester off of college. I worked in New York for a few months and made some money. And then I went to New Zealand for three months uh, and, and worked on two organic farms there and, uh, and had a really great time. And also realized that being so far away from my home and my family and, and school, I really, the, the one thing in my life that I really missed was music. I thought I would like, go travel and I would like find something that I cared about but it was actually the absence of that thing is what is what drew me to it I came back to to college uh and I took my first music class I just like dove into the history of western music and I took composition classes and I took theory classes and it was this whole other approach to, to music and repertoire that, that was totally new to me. And, uh, and I discovered that as much as I loved playing music and making music, I also just really loved trying to understand the history of, of music and trying to understand and decode how a piece of music works and, uh, and, then, the, and then how to translate that for, for other people and how to, how to teach and communicate those ideas and and discovering that passion eventually led me to this discipline that I'd previously never heard of called musicology. <laughs> right. I was going to say, I was like, I mean, you know, most people starting off doing music, they just don't conceive of musicology as, as a thing that is done and can be done, you know? Yeah. No, until that point, I had only 
the only time I'd heard Musicology was as the title of a Prince song, <laughs> uh, which is a great song, by the way. I think you could you could even argue that musicology is a kind of pretentious term, and we could just say music history. But right, right, that's maybe another podcast. Uh, yeah, but I I found this whole discipline that I'd never heard of before, and uh, by the time I graduated, I I had started to think about applying to graduate programs, PhD programs in uh, in music history musicology. It was also, to really be frank about the context, I graduated right after the 2008 economic collapse. And I think going to grad school where you would have a a small but guaranteed stipend for five years and covered tuition, it was like, seemed like a good bet at that time. It's a recurring theme on this podcast, how many times different artists made a, a really pivotal decision in their career based on a, like what seems like a relatively minor but important economic <laughs> incentive, right. you know, like Ex- exigency. It's yeah. Like, oh. yeah, that's so interesting. They'll be like, oh, why did you become a music producer? And it's like, well, I played guitar <laughs> and I realized, you know, it was hard to make money at guitar, but people were paying me, you know, hundreds of dollars per session to produce their music. And I was like, eh, I'm going to do that instead, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's just a really funny thing. Uh, so you get to Stanford and then... <laughs> funny I'm, I'm like i was doing some research and i'm you know looking at this this video of you as a phd candidate talking about the cotton club in harlem yeah yeah speaking of of terms that i re- i you know, only learned recently i learned this term historiography like the study of actual his- historical writing so the idea of like the history of history exactly yeah like meta meta history yes right exactly I guess what I would want to ask you is, you know, I mean, we can talk a little bit about just the Cotton Club and, and what it is and, and the way that, that you very clearly talked about it is just that it's a, it's a place where some of the most famous black musicians of the time played for white audiences in New York. Yes. So that creates yes. just this really crazy dissonance in terms of like race, civil rights, the social politics of the time, and also just the music of the time, too, is, is really interesting. And as you were talking about earlier, we sort of talk about jazz starting around 1930s, 40s, like, you know, Charlie Parker-ish. And I can say, you know, at USC being a performance major there, yeah, we pretty much start there at, like, bebop. And, you know, we spend, like, one class, I think maybe one day I spent, you know, really thinking about, like, New Orleans music or, you know, Louis Armstrong and the Hot Five or that group. Right, right. And there's a reason for that. It's like, well, jazz became very academic and you know you wanted to fit into certain kinds of circles and so we get to school and we study a lot of theory and we study a lot of chord changes and and just how these rhythms work and how you need to play to be able to make it in the professional world and we neglect this whole other side of jazz history and and history at large and so why don't you I mean first that was a lot so why don't you tell me about the Cotton Club why you were interested in it and then we can start talking a little bit about just how problematic or not problematic different parts of, of history and studying music history in college really is. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's a topic uh, that, that interested me for two reasons. And, and, and one is the, the really complex racial dynamics of, of that moment in the 1920s and 1930s where you have a nightclub in the heart of Harlem on 145th and Lenox Avenue 
that features Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, Ethel Waters, Lena Horne, all, all the luminaries of the black entertainment circuit at, at that time. And, and it's located in the, the geographical heart of America's foremost black neighborhood, Harlem. And the people who live in that neighborhood are not able to, to walk into that club. They'll be turned away at the door. Only white patrons are allowed into the Cotton Club, which was just just really kind of shocking and, and something that I felt like I needed to try and understand um, how this how this could be, how what it felt like to be on either side of that that uh, dynamic, you know, to be a performer there and to be a patron there, um, to be an employee there, to be a dancer there. Like, what 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 did that feel like? Because it's just it it must have been so fraught. And th- so that's I think that's a really interesting historical moment. But you know, ultimately. It, it wouldn't be something I would want to study if the music wasn't also really extraordinary. Sure. And the the music that Duke Ellington was creating at this point in time is is simply uh, incredible. Pieces like East St. Louis Tudelo um, and Echoes of Harlem, which are and many of the uh, and the Mooch, which are which are a lot of, a lot of which are still standards. Cab Calloway's Minnie the Moocher and uh, and Kicking the Gong Around and. Ethel Waters singing uh, the first performance of Stormy Weather by Harold Arlen at the at the Cotton Club. I mean, these are still a lot of these a lot of music that was that was created and premiered at the club is now part of the American musical canon. So it, it's it's a very rich and a very complicated moment that I I just felt like I wanted to to better understand how how that all went down. Right. And uh, and studying it was really rewarding because it it allowed me to uh, to to do all this archival research, looking at uh, sheet music that was published from the time period and programs that were that were published for the Cotton Club, uh, promotional materials that were made for the artists, uh, advertisements and uh, newspaper reviews of, of shows and profiles of, of the musicians. Sure, I remember looking at some of these in our history class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I, have, a, I have to thank uh, one of the, the great research institutions uh, in the world, eBay. I got... <laughs> uh, an extraordinary amount of material, some of which, you know, for a few dollars, I would get a, a piece of sheet music from 1928 that that That's was incredible. sent to me that showed up in my mailbox a week later. You know, yeah, it's right. amazing. Um, so, so that was really fun. And and then in uh, at Emory University in Atlanta, there's an amazing archive, an, an oral historian named Delilah Jackson, and during the 1980s and 90s. She interviewed people who had worked at the Cotton Club during the 1920s and 30s. So they were much, much older, obviously. They were in their 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, and she would, she would go in person or call them on the phone and ask them questions about that time and record the conversation. And then I uh, got to listen to all, all of these recordings and transcribe them and... And that was that was incredible because not only do you get really valuable information about 
what it was like to be there, but you you really hear their their tone and their and their humor and and sometimes their sadness and uh and so that really made it not just a kind of academic exploration but a really emotional experience as well so yeah when you talk about the emotional resonance of it i I mean i connect with that a lot i can just say like a a small story that i (laughs) it's funny i left school and then during the pandemic i've been taking classical music like piano lessons and I've been playing this piece called Summerland by William Grant Still. Mm. And people know of William Grant Still, at least in the classical music world, my friends know about it because he was the, the composer of the Afro-American Symphony. That's right. Um, which was his first symphony. And at the same time, there were so many things I heard in, his, in that piece, just in the composition of it, that I was like, this, he must have done, done some jazz stuff. I was like, this mm. must have happened. And I wasn't sure... And I was doing research and good old Wikipedia after also looking through some of the other sources to make sure they're legit. I mean, it's just amazing that William Grant still I mean, worked with in Memphis with W.C. Handy, who like is just someone that I just admire just based on you know where I'm from. Recorded with Fletcher Henderson. He received a Guggenheim Fellowship. The L.A. Phil, he conducted the L.A. Phil, which is like crazy and is just it's amazing because his music was really widely played even in its time. And then it just kind of like, quote unquote, just disappeared. And then all of a sudden no one was playing it until recently in, in regards to you know, protests for racial justice. And, and you know, in, in America, we're starting to see more and more people are like, hey, we should really find these composers again and make sure that we're, we're playing their music because it's a really vital part of our history. Um, but when I play Summerland and I think about that, I think about that history, it is a very emotional experience, actually, just to play the music because in, in a very small way, you feel like you just enter into the world that some of these black musicians must have been living in at that time. To think that like some of the, the best musicians of the time were in Harlem, some of them were homeless. I mean, there are jazz musicians who were famous who were like homeless in New York. That to me is just, it's, it's just crazy to think about. Yeah. Wow. I love, I love that anecdote, Serge. Uh... You've taught me a few things about William Grant still, which is really cool. Shout out to Wikipedia. I think Wikipedia. <laughs> I'll, I'll say it. I'll say it on the podcast, you know. And angry professors, you know, feel free. My emails on the USC website. <laughs> but uh, you can learn so much from Wikipedia, and it's a great place to start when you're doing research. It's not the end. It shouldn't be the end of your research, but it's a it's a great place to start. It's hard to find some of the historical information for for many of these musicians. The kind of work that you were doing at Stanford, I mean, it's so necessary because they're just not as well studied. It wasn't a topic of interest for a lot of musicologists studying Mm. because of racial prejudice, just, you know, to start off, but for other reasons as well. But it's just amazing that some of these musicians, I mean, William Grant still, I think, has a few biographies that are relatively authoritative, but in general, it's quite hard to find historical um, things to read about these people. Yeah, no, you're right. And probably less so now, but for I think for a long time, Wikipedia would give you insights into a performer's personal life that you wouldn't get from a standard encyclopedia. For instance, if you looked in the Encyclopedia of Jazz, would it tell you that Billy Strayhorn was a gay man and that influenced a lot of mm. his compositions i don't i don't think so but wikipedia will will have that salient information yeah absolutely um 
Okay, so you know something. Uh, obviously, I wanted to make sure we talked about is your podcast, Switched on Pop, and I, I think that that really it connects to a lot of the stuff we've talked about, even if it seems indirect. And you also have this book with your co-host Charlie Harding, Switched on Pop: How Popular Music Works and Why It Matters. So, I mean, I can start off with just my sort of having listened to episodes of your podcast, just what I take from it. And then if you want, you know, you can talk about what you feel like the podcast means to you, what you're trying to do there, and we'll go from there. So I, <laughs> I think I sort of discovered your podcast when I was in your class. I have been listening to podcasts for years, and I love, like, the podcast world. And so I was very familiar when it was like, when that podcast went to, it was on Vox, and then it went to Vulture, which is owned by Vox. I was just like, I was super excited. I was like, oh my God, guys, <laughs> Nate Sloan has this podcast. You need to listen to it. It's great. Uh, and then as I listened to it more and more, what I appreciated was that some of the, the same ways that we interrogated jazz in our class, you were interrogating pop music and not in a, a solely like a, a pretentious way, trying to, uh, let's say, take pop music and, and put it into a box, but saying, hey, no, look at like what Billie Eilish is doing. This is like a known musical thing and it's no less valuable than something that Mozart did in his time. Right. Uh, I always say that one of the hardest things to do in music is to write a top 40 song. It's, hmm. it's one of the hardest things to do. And I know cause like I've, I've taken songwriting classes and just the level of detail that, that songwriters take when they try to write something that's going to be on the radio and it's going to be a hit. It's harder than almost anything I've ever tried to do. And so I just love that that you, when you talk about music and switched on pop, you really talk about pop music in that way with real analysis and, and, and really trying to not separate it with other stuff. So how do you sort of conceive of your, I guess, purpose on switched on pop? <laughs> yeah, it's it's one thing to say that you listen to and respect all types of music equally. I think a lot of us <laughs> like it's you know we like to say some version of that sure um it's a lot harder to to put your money where your mouth is and really actively search out and genuinely engage with a lot of different kinds of music including some that you know might you might really initially have a negative reaction to and and that was certainly my my initial relationship to pop music i really uh looked down on it i i was very disdainful of, of pop music. Uh, and I really got a, a big ego boost from, uh, from listening to and playing complicated and abstract uh, yeah, right. jazz and, and, oh, yeah. and new music. And the, in many ways, the story of the, the podcast is also the story of myself and my, my friend and co-host, Charlie Harding, learning to, to love pop. And in the process, learning to shed one's assumptions and to have the, I would, I would really say the life-changing experience of, of listening to music through someone else's ears hmm. and trying to understand, trying to approach the music that you might not think you like or, or you might look down on, like pop music, and try and understand what does someone get out of this? Why does someone listen to it? Not to assume that they are misguided or, you know, insipid for, for listening to pop right, music. Right. But actually to try and respect their desires and their 
identities and, and really trying to understand what their relationship is to that music. Because when you do, I think you start to gain some perspective on what to me is now a clear reality, that when we criticize music, what we're really doing is we are criticizing the identity or the culture that we associate with that music. Okay. And so pop music, I think, really becomes a site, a repository for a lot of our prejudices and our, and our anxieties around some of the, the most key issues of identity that we tackle in our society today. Hmm. Race, gender, sexuality, age, ability. Like, these are things that are all contained within pop music. And I think it's oftentimes when you say, to use an example drawn ripped from my own uh, pers- personal history, um, you know, when you say, I hate One Direction, I think they're crappy musicians who don't write their own songs and only appeal to teenage girls because they have good hair. I think what you're actually saying is I don't have a lot of respect for the taste and the opinions of, of young people, especially young girls. And giving myself a critical distance from this music is a way to sort of reassert my uh, moral and intellectual su- superiority over that group. Yeah. And to force yourself to listen to One Direction's entire catalog <laughs> in a really sincere way is a, is a surprisingly emotional and, 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 an, and a, uh, an emotional experience and, and one that really causes you to look, do a lot of soul searching and to think about how does my experience of actually listening to this music, how close is it to what I assumed this music was going to be? A lot of the times it's not, you know, you, you actually discover that there's a lot that, that, that really moves you and, and captures you about the music. Mm-hmm. And you also understand maybe why this music speaks to the audience it has and how much meaning and, and purpose and community they draw from that music and how ultimately that's really worth celebrating, even if you don't come away with it being like, oh, and now I'm a huge One Direction fan who listens to their music every day. Maybe not, but maybe you have a newfound appreciation for what that music means and how it signifies and how it creates culture and community in our world. Yeah. Going off on that, I wanted to get your take on what the purpose of genre distinctions is in the 21st century. I mean, number one is what do they serve? And number two, do they serve as well? So, I mean, there's been a couple of stories, I think, in the last couple of years that sort of come to mind. One that we talked about was Lil Nas X. Yes. And this this distinction between hip hop and country and sort of not being accepted on the country charts, which, yeah. you know, had some some racial issues at play there, obviously, as well as the fact that like it was just sort of right in the middle there where you've got these trap rhythms and then you've also got the guitar and I think there's banjo and stuff like that as well. And the music video and Billy Ray Cyrus, which all scream sort of country at you. And then in addition to that, there's also, I remember Justin Bieber was nominated in the pop category. And I remember him saying, Hey, you know, I don't, I don't feel like this is a pop album. This is more of an R and B album Mm -hmm. to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's also a lot of like commentators and people who based on whether it's racial things, based on whether it's gendered things, 
decide to label something as one genre or the other based on where they think it fits. And then in, in addition to that, I think there's also just this level of like, I when I talk to like artists who are making music today, and this has been true for years, Miles Davis famously said he didn't like jazz as a term. You're seeing a lot, a lot of artists are just like, I don't make classical music. Like I just make music and I don't make jazz music. I just make music. I don't, I don't even know what that means. Like my indie pop is just like my jazz and I listen to it all on Spotify at the same time. <laughs> so why does it matter? So what do you think about just the distinctions? Do they feel, do you feel like they serve a purpose? And then how could we maybe shake that up a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's it's a really key question right now. And, and my answer is that it's a little of both. The argument that genre is less important than ever, you know, I find really compelling. For, for, all, the, for all the reasons you talked about, genre is often just a stand-in for identity, racial identity, sexual identity, gender identity. And, I'd, you know, I'd add to the examples you shared, little, the Lil Nas X uh, example, the Justin Bieber example, the... I would add Tyler, the creator at the Grammys uh, two years ago, I believe, (laughs) outright calling the Grammy committee racist for describing his album as hip hop. When you listen to uh, Igor, just calling that album hip hop does not really capture what he's doing on that by any means. And it really probably speaks to the idea that a mostly white awards committee just saw him as a young black man and was like, oh. That must be a hip-hop artist. Yep. And hip-hop in general has had difficulty getting into the pop category at the Grammys, which is so interesting because you're seeing those same hip-hop sounds sort of infiltrate the rest of pop music yeah. in a way that I think is like, it's, it's almost like shocking because you just see, you're like, wait a minute, so like pop musicians can use the soundscape of like mostly black musicians who created the stuff, but then black musicians can't get into the pop categories. It's like a metaphor for the whole problem. You're, you're right. And it's and it's not accidental. It goes back to some of the early decades of the American music industry when record companies in the 1920s and, and 30s decided to deliberately create these sonic color lines. It was entirely motivated by a finan- a, it was a financial calculus that they could sell more records by splitting the music industry into black records and white records and that way they could target specific audiences uh that leads you to the earliest version of the billboard charts already with this racial division where there's the country charts they actually called them the hillbilly charts in in the (laughs) 1930s uh and over on the other side was the harlem hit parade and that later became race records later became R&B later became R&B slash hip hop, which I think is what it currently is now. Mm, interesting. So that's a long, and the, this is, I, I want to shout out the book Segregating Sound by Carl Hagstrom Miller, which talks about that historical moment. So we're still living with that, the, the aftermath of that, that choice to essentially racially segregate the, the music industry. You know, I think the, another big thing that's happening in terms of genre is the way that streaming music platforms create new genre conceptions and 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 i'm not interesting you know the first person to say this there's been a lot of writing about for instance that when you go onto spotify you're probably more likely to 
listen to a playlist organized around a certain mood or or even potentially a, a certain time of day or uh, a certain you know newness uh, of, of of release yeah or like activity too right because like there's like exercise ones and like activity yeah exactly exactly listening context rather than oh i'm gonna listen to a hip-hop playlist or an r&b playlist or a country playlist i think the other piece is that uh there's there's just less genre allegiance i guess than than there was in the past when you would you know you would show up to school and there would be the goths in one corner of the cafeteria and the the hip-hop kids in another and the metal kids in another corner and like there was there's like some real clear lines of music and identity that i don't for better or worse don't exist in quite the same way right now so i i think that's all for the best but you know the, the one thing i will say is that i think what i value about genre is that it 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 does require you as an artist if you if you're engaging with a, a genre, it, it, it forces you to engage with with the history and the sound of a music in a in a really granular way and in a way that really makes you do your homework and and really requires you to understand the the sound and the and the cultural meaning of that that music. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's really important. And I and I would would not want to lose that even to gain the kind of even playing field of a genreless world. Like, I don't, I don't want to lose... I mean, you're familiar with that as, as studying jazz. Is, is sure. That, that's, that's what it is so much about, is trying to really immerse yourself in the craft and the history and the significance of that music. Um, and there's something really important about that. Um, it strikes me that I'm kind of making this up as I go. I'm just thinking as like a, as a person who's a you know a creator as a writer, that in the study of music, it seems that genre has its use because, like you said, the way that I learned how to play jazz, the way I learned how to play the ride cymbal, like a swinging ride cymbal, to get that sound, is I had to listen to records and emulate that sound. Is the only way I could I could get that to where it sounded authentic to what would be, you know, considered like the lineage of jazz, right? Where someone can say, oh, yeah, he, he's in that, that pocket or that kind of sound. Uh, and it's something really hard to quantify. It can't be written, you know, in a book. And, and you, so I, I think there's only one way to do it, and it's to listen to those records, right? So in that sense, it does make sense. But then on the creative side of things, once you've, you've done that work, the homework of, oh, yeah, like this is what, this is what bossa nova sounds like, Right. Then on the creative side of things, it seems to me that it, to say, oh, I'm going to write a jazz composition is really a, a poor way to think about what you're doing. And really, it's like, well, and I, I tell people this all the time. I mean, if I have an idea for a story, I really don't know which medium it's going to come out in. I don't know if it's going to come out as a jazz composition. Is it going to come out as a song? Is it going to come out as a play? Is it going to come out as a movie? I have no idea. And so at that moment, it seems like the genre distinctions don't matter too much. So it's, it is this interesting, like, give and take that you want to study the history, but then not be boxed in by it, too. Um, the other thing I wanted to, we, I know we have a, a couple minutes left. I wanted to get your take on, on two different artists that are very, very different. One is you wrote this scholarly article on Taylor Swift. Yeah. Uh, which I think is just amazing. And I wanted to read from the abstract. Uh, your, the article, make sure I have it here. Uh, the article is called Taylor Swift and the Work of songwriting 
and it was published in the Contemporary Music Review. You say this, you say, though one of the most discussed figures in popular culture, there exists little analysis of the musical works that remain the fulcrum of Swift's artistry and artist brand. Gender and genre bias have clouded perception of Swift's particular skills and techniques. And then you say, by listening closely to her recorded output, we can hear how a modern songwriter responds to commercial pressures to evolve while retaining a coherent musical identity. And so I wanted to get your take on, on why Taylor Swift inspires you, why you, you feel that her music in particular, like it, that it needs this analysis, which has been missing for a while. Yeah, I'd see her as a figure who has, you know, some, something in common with, with some of the people we've been talking about, like One Direction and, and Justin Bieber, someone who, because at least, at least for a long time in the beginning of her, her career, her principal audience was young teenage and preteen girls, that there was something inherently kind of suspicious or lesser about her artistry. As a result of doing the Switch on Pop podcast about Taylor Swift listening to songs like You Belong With Me, uh, which was a, a huge hit from um, 2008, I believe. Yeah, that sounds about right. And really listening deeply to this song and, and, and just coming away with such an appreciation for the, the craft that went into it the way she creates melodic variation over the course of it, the way she builds up to the pre-chorus, the way she creates these incredibly evocative images with just a few lines of text. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I suddenly found myself once again in the position of, of, of being like, oh, I told myself I didn't like this artist and my basis for that was com completely BS. <laughs> um, and, and then she's become such, I, I, think, I think that's what initially attracts me to her. And then she's become such an interesting figure because she's really stood in for a lot of the, the biases we have about authenticity. You know, when I, I write in that article about how when she transitioned from more of a country artist to more of a pop artist, a lot of people uh, reacted really negatively. How could, how could she, she's not you know, a real artist because she's just chasing, you know, the commercial trends. Yeah. Um, in that article, I show how far, far from just, uh, you know, pursuing the biggest market or something, she's really adapting not only her uh, persona, but her whole sound. She's, she's writing songs in a completely new way as she transitions to this pop style. Right. Um, listening to her, her music, which spans almost perfectly like the f first two decades of the 21st century. It's like you can see all the themes of modern music, how it's made, how it's received, uh, and, and how, it, how it creates audiences and communities. So I think she is just one, one of the most fascinating figures and, and one of the most compelling musicians that we, that we have right now. And, it's, it's, uh, and she's given us a lot of music to study, which is really fun. It's just funny because like, this artist has innovated and adapted for a decade and a half and consistently puts out hits that people connect with over and over and over again. And it's hard because you look at artists in her, let's say, crop of people from 2008, 2009, and you say, mm -hmm. how many of them can be at the top of the billboard in 2021? And the answer is just so few of them because it's hard to adapt your sound three, four, five times. 
and and you're and actually we're kind of seeing that in live action because she's re-recording her masters right now right 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 and so yeah. we're seeing her do the songs that she did when she was 16 17 18 all the way up until today and it's just it's fascinating to hear you can like hear the history of like pop music songwriting in the last two like you said in the last two decades from her work alone which is just it's 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 really a stunning achievement actually and then to go to a totally different artist i was really excited to see that you mentioned vijay Iyer as being someone who you really liked yeah um and i i too am really i love vijay Iyer's music from the stuff he was doing sort of like a trio setting all the way to, to doing to his stuff later and then i happened to see him in new york and just as, a, as an artist his sound is is very hard to pin down i mean there are influences in some albums of a lot of indian music but at the same time there's a real jazz tradition to his playing and he's also a professor at harvard now so like there's a whole level another level of material he does yeah. so what is it about his work that that interests you well i'll, I'll speak to the the most recent album he he released uh, because this was something that that really struck me because there's a lot of jazz music and I need to issue the caveat that he wouldn't appreciate me calling him a jazz musician. He would use sure. a term uh, like maybe creative music or, or probably just no label at all. Yes, but certainly he's not divorced from a, a, a lineage that has often been called jazz, a lineage of black radical imp improvised music. Sure. Let's, how about that? Absolutely. Yeah. This is the, the album um, with, is this with Taishan Sori and, and Linda Mehano, right? That album? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, exactly. It's it. called Uneasy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's wonderful. It was released uh, on, on ECM. And in the dozen or so tracks on this album, you find titles... Uh, and descriptions of the songs relating to issues of race and justice that we're facing in our contemporary world uh, from a song like Children of Flint, which is a reference to the Flint water crisis, to um, Combat Breathing, which is a reference to the murder of Eric Garner by the New York police mm -hmm. uh, and and even contains uh, rhythmic references to the, the circumstances of his death. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was just really kind of bracing and, and refreshing for me to encounter someone making instrumental improvised music who wasn't just thinking about the music in this kind of ab abstract way, but in a way that it was that was really connected and, and drawn from the hurt and the fear and the solidarity and the the confidence and the hope of of this moment like that was all in there and it was just really a, a very profound listening experience and and really something really different and something that really made me as a as a listener and a and a writer and a musician just uh really inspired the last thing i wanted to ask you before we go is just what what do you think is like maybe the most exciting trend in music for the next 10 years. So what is something that, that you see happening in music, whether it's you know, the way music is streamed or the kind of music that's being created? What are you excited about in terms of like the development of music in the next decade? I love that question, Serge. <laughs> uh, I love it so much because it makes it, it's requiring me to, to think <laughs> a little bit. One thing that I'm really excited for is a renewed interest in a, in a sort of return to live music 
And I think that's partially as a response to the pandemic and the, the loss of that experience for, for, for so many people for so long. Mm-hmm. And maybe just more generally a response to an increasing amount of digitization and, uh, and even sometimes like a certain amount of, of artificial intelligence that's increasingly involved in, in music. Oh, yeah. uh, I have been walking around the campus of USC and because wind instruments have to practice outside, you know, you are hearing the the strains of, of tubas and clarinets and oboes and choirs everywhere you go. And, it, and it's really, I, I never want it to end, to be honest. I don't, even when we can go back inside, I don't think we should because there is just something so electric about after after music being virtually shut down for so long to to just have that experience of a of a sound wave hitting your eardrum from a, another human being that is just that just reminds you of how fundamental that interaction is and how core it is to the human experience um and i'm i'm excited to see us rediscover and and hopefully celebrate that interaction and if we do you know i think it could lead to some really positive changes uh not that i think there's anything wrong with making music using digital tools and software i think it's incredibly exciting to do so but i think a, a, an acknowledgement of the live element of of music can help us to make music a more equitable place in term, in terms of race in terms of the finances of of being a musician today which is a really precarious kind of existence Mm -hmm. you know i could i could see it leading to union like unionization and organizing movements for for musicians Mm -hmm. and i could see it as a chance to to even think about the, the ecology of music and the sustainability of music and the ultimately the the very human value of music so so that's what i look forward to and i'm cautiously optimistic about as we as we move into the to the future yeah it's wonderful i look forward to it as well anyways nate thank you so much for talking with me i really appreciate you coming on art and all its forms it's been a pleasure this has been so much fun serge but you're not off the hook yet okay? oh god Before no we go <laughs> okay i'm gonna need to ask you just a few questions okay. um let me think uh when when was uh, the first electric mic- uh, microphone technology introduced? <laughs> there's, there's no way I'm getting that correctly. Um, oh boy, technology! I gotta think that's gotta be in like the mid to late 1920s. Yeah, take a guess. 1927. 1925. We're oh. gonna give it to you. Okay. At at least partial credit. That was very nice, Serge. Not bad. Um, the chances of this getting edited out are less and less now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell me uh, who created a which which artist created a suite of protest music in a response to South African apartheid in the in the nineteen sixties. Which which jazz artist called the Freedom Now Suite? Oh, oh, oh Max Roach. Yeah, Max and, and the vocalist, uh, uh, Abby Lincoln. Yavi Lincoln. Okay, okay. Two for two. Let's give you uh, one more. Give me the term that describes the approach of New Orleans jazz musicians to to soloing. 
I don't know. You have to tell me. Collective improvisation. Oh, collective improv. But that's okay. You got two out of three, and you're still you've demonstrated <laughs> that some some yeah some some knowledge you, from school. Exactly. That's all. That's all I asked for, Serge. <laughs> Seriously, this has been so much fun. Thank you, genuinely, for having me on and and giving me this rich conversation. It's been great. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You can subscribe to Art in All Its Forms, the podcast and the newsletter at artinallitsforms.substack.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps. And if you want to send us a question or comments or concerns, uh, please email us at aiaifpod at gmail.com. That's aiaifpod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.